Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to what I'm sure you'll agree is one of the most eagerly awaited events of this great and wonderful festival. Uh, I'm delighted to be sitting here in the Royal Bank of Scotland tent at a Royal Bank of Scotland event. It's <laughs> my dues paid. I'd, I'd rather be inside a Royal Bank of Scotland tent than outside a Royal Bank of Scotland tent, I can assure you. Uh, and of course, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce uh, Ian Rankin. Uh, the book festival, as you may have noticed, is sponsored uh, this year by The Times. And uh, The Times is best for crime. Indeed, the story that they ran on page three this morning was headlined, The Case of the Bloodthirsty Lesbians. <laughs> uh, many people assumed that this was the title of uh, Ian's uh, <laughs> book, and uh, that this indeed, we'd blown the secret of the last Rebus book. But no, he assures me that is not the case. However, this book, of course, is what we're all waiting to hear about. And I'm going to ask Ian if you would perhaps tell us the title here and now. Um, no, but, but uh, um, <laughs> Uh, I, I will, I will a little later on, but I thought I might um, start with a little reading from the book itself, um, if that's okay. So all right, do a, a very, on. very short reading. Um, as you can see, I don't have any finished copies of it, but I do have a <laughs> scrap of paper here, which happens to be the manuscript. Um, it comes out the first week of September, and it is, it is done and dusted to all um, intents and purposes. There has been a, just to set the scene, because this is page 27, I see from my um, scroll at the top. Um, there has been the murder of a, of a Russian dissident um, poet um, just in a little alleyway which doesn't exist off King Stables Road. Um, Rebus and his uh, colleague Siobhan have been to the scene. Um, they have been to the mortuary. They have identified who the person is. Um, it's the next day and uh, Rebus is, has just left Siobhan. They've had a little spat and he's on his way back to the crime scene. Rebus thought he knew why they could barely hold a five-minute conversation without starting to snipe at one another. It was bound to be a tense time. Him leaving the field of battle, her on the cusp of promotion. They'd worked together so long, been friends almost as long, bound to be a tense time. Everyone assumed that they'd slept together at some point down the line, but no way either of them would have let that happen. How could they have worked as partners afterwards? It would have been all or nothing. And they loved the job too much to let anything else get in the way. The one thing he'd made her promise was that there'd be no surprise parties his last week at work. Their boss at Gayfield Square had even offered to host something. But Rebus had thanked him with a shake of the head. You're the longest serving officer in CID, McRae had persisted. Then it's the folk who've put up with me who deserve the medal, Rebus had retorted. The cordon was still in place at the bottom of Rayburn Wind, but one of the locals ducked beneath the blue and white striped tape, resistant to the idea that anywhere in Edinburgh could be off-limits to him. Or so Rebus surmised by the hand gesture the man made when warned by Ray Duff that he was contaminating a crime scene. Duff was shaking his head, more in sorrow than anything else, when Rebus approached. Gates reckoned this is where I'd find you, Rebus said. Duff rolled his eyes. And now you're walking all over my locus. Rebus answered with a twitch of the mouth. Duff was crouching beside his forensic kit, a toughened red plastic toolbox bought from B&Q. Its myriad drawers opened concertina style, but Duff was in the process of closing them. I thought you'd be putting your feet up, Duff commented. No, you didn't. Duff laughed. True enough. Any joy, Rebus asked. Duff snapped shut the box and lifted it with him as he got to his feet. I wandered as far as the top of the lane, checking all the garages along the way. Thing is, if he'd been attacked up there, we'd have traces of blood on the roadway. He stamped his foot to reinforce the point. And the blood's elsewhere, John. He gestured for Rebus to follow and took a left along King Stables Road. Do you see anything? Rebus looked hard at the pavement and noticed a trail of splashes. There were intervals between them. The blood had lost most of its colour but was still recognisable. How come we didn't spot this last night? Duff shrugged. 
His car was parked curbside and he unlocked it long enough to stow his box of tricks. How far have you followed it? Rebus asked. I was just about to get started when you arrived. Let's go. They began walking, eyes on the sporadic series of drips. You going to join SCRU? Duff asked. <laughs> you think they'd want me? SCRU was the Serious Crime Review Unit. It might actually be pronounced screw, but um, <laughs> SCRU was the Serious Crime Review Unit. It consisted of three retired detectives whose job was to look at unsolveds. Did you hear about the result we got last week? Duff said. DNA from a sweated fingerprint. Sort of thing that can be useful on cold cases. DNA boost means we can decipher the DNA multiples. It's a shame I can't decipher what you're saying. <laughs> Duff chuckled. World's changing, John. Faster than most of us can keep up with. You're saying I should embrace the scrap heap? Duff just shrugged. They'd covered 100 yards or so and were standing at the exit to a multi-story car park. There were two barriers. Drivers could choose either one. Once you'd paid for your ticket, you slid it into a slot and the barrier would rise. Have you ID'd the victim? Duff asked, looking around as he tried to pick up the trail again. Russian poet. Did he drive a car? Guy couldn't even change his own light bulbs, Ray. The thing about car parks, John, is always a bit of oil left lying around. Rebus had noticed that there were intercoms fixed alongside either barrier. He pressed a button and waited. After a few moments, a voice crackled from the loudspeaker. What is it? <laughs> I wonder if you can help me. Are you after directions or something? Look, Chief, this is a car park. All we do here is park cars. Took Rebus only a second to work things out. You can see me, he said. Yes, a CCTV camera high up in one corner, pointing at the exit. Rebus gave it a wave. You got a problem with your car? The voice was asking. I'm a cop, Rebus answered. I want a word with you. What about? Where are you? Next floor up, the voice admitted eventually. Is this to do with that prang I had? That depends. Did you happen to hit a guy and kill him? <laughs> Christ, no! Aye. Might be okay then. We'll be there in a minute. Rebus moved away from the barrier towards where Ray Duff was down on all fours, peering beneath a parked BMW. I'm not too keen on these new beamers, Duff said, sensing Rebus behind him. Have you found something? I think there's blood under here. If you were asking me, I'd say this is Trail's End. Rebus walked around the vehicle. There was a ticket on the dashboard showing it had entered the car park at 11 that morning. Next car along, Duff was saying. Is there something underneath it? Rebus did a circuit of the big Lexus, but couldn't see anything. Nothing else for it but to get down on hands and knees himself. A bit of string or wire. He reached a hand beneath the car, fingertips scrabbling at it, eventually drawing it out. Hauled himself back to his feet and held it dangling by thumb and forefinger. The poet's missing silver neck chain. Ray, he said, better go fetch your B&Q. <laughs> That'll do us. Thank you. What a terrible situation to be in when you've not read the book. I think you've got... Mr. Uh, Mr. Chair. Three... <laughs> You've got 350 absolutely guaranteed sales here because... What about that? that 300? That had uh, all the characteristic rebus touches, the, the wee patches of blood, the, yeah. the exchange with the guy. Perfect. Uh, so now, what's the title? Um, later. <laughs> um, I do, however, we did, we went to the, we, on my website with a wee competition for fans to see if anybody could guess, bearing in mind previous titles, what the title of the final Rebus might be. And uh, these, are, these are the best of them. And uh, we had hundreds. Um, but if I tell you that the best of them includes the prime of Mr. John Rebus. Um, D.I. Rebus will die. And Skinner's Mile. Uh, an entry from a Mr. Q Jardin in, uh, in East Lothian. <laughs> um, I mean, I was, I was really interested. I mean, folk had they'd got the right idea, which is that it would have a musical connotation. So many of the previous Rebus titles have had a musical connotation. And a lot of people went for the Rolling Stones. I mean, seven people went for Not Fade Away. Um, we had um, Through the Past Darkly, which is a Stones album, Dirty Work, A Bigger Bang. I didn't realize the Stones had such great titles. <laughs> I mean, any one of these would make a, a decent um, crime novel. Um, Ashes to Ashes, I thought was good. Beat Surrender, I thought was very clever. 
Um, the one I liked best, though, because we decided we'd have a prize, even if nobody got it right, we'll have a prize. And the one I chose was the final cut, uh, which is a Pink Floyd album, and I thought that worked quite well. Um, I also liked If You're Feeling Sinister, which is a song by Bell and Sebastian. Nobody got it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> did you, however, as you went through the list, think, damn? Oh, they're all, they're all tucked away. No, one. they're all tucked away. <laughs> they're all tucked away. And in fact, I've shared them with a few crime writing friends and said, oh, that one looks all right. So uh, there's no copyright on titles. No. So you can, um, they can be used over and over again. I mean, Hide and Seek, which was the second Rebus novel, I've come across. I mean, it wasn't by no means the first book titled Hide and Seek and certainly was by no means the last. Um, but, uh, and, and possibly there is a book out there already called what the new one's going to be called. But anyway. <laughs> I mean, the naming of the dead, for example, is a good case in point because that was just something that jumped at me from the newspaper during G8 week when they had the they marched up to the um, uh, um, oh, what's it called, Calton Hill, and read out a list of people names of people who had died mm -hmm. in the conflict in Iraq, and he mm -hmm. called it the naming of the dead ceremony. And sometimes that's all you need. It just jumps yeah. out at you and says that is not only the title of your book but the theme of your book. It's what cops do. Yeah. They give identities and they give resonance. And, and, they, and they don't allow the dead to disappear yeah. until a, a kind of justice has been done. Yeah. Now, Rebus, we know, I think, and, and actually just from that excerpt, that Rebus survives. He doesn't he end does. up with a dagger between his shoulder no, blades. It was, it was touch and go. Touch and it go. was touch and go. But, but he um, survives. He does. And he wanders he off. And I'm just sort of... Looking at um, you know the way that you described him from time to time in the past, you've you've made the point that this guy has no hobbies, doesn't follow he's got, sport. He's got at least one hobby. No, that, sorry, I'm just it's quoting just it's Ian Rankin. Him. It's I mean, killing his hobbies, killing him. That's the problem. Uh, doesn't follow sports. Yeah. Never took a holiday. His favoured location is the Oxford Bar. That's he his, that's stares his at the telly. Yep. I mean, what is this? Guy? He may not, you may not have killed him off, but will retirement not kill him off? I think, I think in the real world, retirement would kill him off, um, as it sometimes does for people. It's, it's funny, isn't it, how often people retire from a very stressful job and they don't last too long um, because the job is the thing that keeps them going and keeps the blood pumping around their system. I mean, in the real world, if Rebus retired and just stood in front of the Oxford Bar day after day, session after session, I don't think he would last that mm. long. On the other hand, I can't see him doing what cops do when they retire. I don't think he's going to drive a cab. I don't think he's going to retire to Marbella. I don't think he's going to open a bed and breakfast in Orkney. Um, I don't think he's going to do um, precognitions for defence lawyers, which a lot of people do. He's not going to become a property developer, which some of them have done. Um, it's tough to think what he would do. He's just going to miss the job. He's going to miss the job and, and whether he can let go. I mean, the new book is really all about his last 10 days and his desperate desire to pass down to Siobhan, his colleague, unsolved cases and cases that haven't been solved to his satisfaction and to keep her interested in them so that when he leaves, there will still be somebody. But to her, they're just ghosts and they're his ghosts and she wants to be her own person. She doesn't mm. want his luggage coming with her. So there's a real tension between them in this last 10 days. Um, and in fact, it actually turns out to be less than that because he does get kicked off the force early. Well, <laughs> um, I, didn't, I didn't mean for that to happen, but it did happen. So uh, I think it's his last six days as a serving police officer. Now, he's going to walk off uh, into the sunset. Uh, and Ian Rankin is going to be standing there without Rebus. How is that going to affect you? I mean, you know, there's that thing about J.K. Rowling cried for two days at the end of the Harry Potter series. And I thought, oh, I didn't do that. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Um, I just went straight to another project. I mean, I was doing, I've, got other, I've been doing other things at the same time. I've, got, I've just been doing a libretto for a, a short opera for Scottish opera. That was challenging. I've started to do a, a comic book that I've been promising DC Comics in America I would do for ages and ages and ages and I've finally written the first three pages of that and I've been doing bits and pieces in between. Um, so I haven't had time yet to sit and think, is there a void there? Uh, and was that really the last Rebus book? Because there are so many get-out clauses. I mean, I mentioned S I mean, SCRU is an obvious one, which is the, the, the Scottish equivalent of the cold case unit and it is staffed by retired cops. So he, being a tenacious detective, he would be perfect material for it. He wouldn't be perfect material for the other get-out clause, which is 30-plus, which is where retired cops come back to pass their 
expertise on to younger detectives because he's, as I've said before, he's got no expertise that the high hegians would want him to pass on to, <laughs> to younger cops. So, um, but you know, we can go back in time. Siobhan can, can take the series over, I think. Rebus can help her out. There are lots and lots of get out clauses, which depend on two things. One, have I got anything new to say in the crime novel about Edinburgh? And two, is Rebus holding back information from me? Is there stuff about him that I would like to know? Mm, yeah, because Sherlock, uh, Conan Doyle, when he mm. killed off Sherlock Holmes, he just breathed a sigh of relief and walked away from him and thought, thank God, that's him finished with. But then he had to bring him back because mm. his, the public simply refused to allow him to go. Yeah, except they didn't. Well, I mean, they sort of did, but I mean, that's, that's one story that's... I mean, one of the biographies I read of Conan Doyle said that he just got offered such a huge amount of money. <laughs> um, I mean, it, cause and that the, couldn't happen to you, Well, well I'd... Uh, no. I'd, I'd, I'd heard that it was because his books after Doyle, like the, the, the fantasies like Lost World, weren't as successful, but apparently they were very successful. Mm. And readers had gone with him into these new territories. Um, but his publisher just offered him a huge amount of money to bring back homes, and he went, yeah, okay. Um, and I mean, I, I also, I mean, Conan Doyle believed in the afterlife. He believed in spiritualism. Mm. So maybe bringing, maybe bringing Sherlock Holmes back, and uh, I'm not sure of the chrono chronology here, maybe Sherlock Holmes was a way of bringing his son back, because his son died, and, he, and he, he, was, he desperately tried to communicate with his son after he died. But that might have happened after he brought back Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you've mentioned Siobhan, and she's there, and she's heading up the hierarchy, and uh, she's become, um, you know, as live, as almost as interesting a character as Rebus himself. I mean, could you see yourself just gently moving into uh, making Siobhan the hero of the heroine of the next series? I, I think she's a big enough character yeah. to carry the books on. I mean, there will always be fans who will say, "Where is Rebus?" And Rebus would, if she was, if she was the hero of the books, Rebus would always be there on the <laughs> sidelines because he's going to be Turning knocking on her door. Yeah, uh, what are you up to? What's going on? What am I missing? Uh, can I help out with anything? Have you got that bugger Cafferty yet? Yeah. You know, all this <laughs> stuff. Um, so, I mean, there's no way that she's going to be able to escape or would want to escape him. I mean, they've forged a very good friendship, and I'm sure she would want him to stay in touch um, no matter what he does with his life out of the force. So, yeah, that's a possibility, I think. And, um, and hopefully readers would go with me on that journey. I mean, she's a... I do find her an interesting character. Mm. I mean, she's developed uh, in, in fascinating ways for me and, and could carry the series forward. I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll ask... Sandy McCall Smith about the perils and pitfalls of having a female character as your main character in a <laughs> detective series. He seems to have made quite a good fist of it. Yes, he does, he does. It is, it's rather remarkable, you mentioned it yourself, that uh, two great uh, heroes have come to their end uh, this year, Harry Potter yeah. and, uh, and Rebus. Uh, and, uh, of course, Madame Ramotswe carries on, and yep. she will probably... Uh, what is it? Why do you think this, was this planned, by the way? Did you and J.K. Rowling said <laughs> 2007, that's the year? No, I mean, it is, I mean it's, a, it's a chronological coincidence that she had planned it always as seven books, mm. and the way they were published meant this was the last year. Uh, I I'd, I'd envisaged Rebus having a, a natural lifespan. He's 40 in, in 1987 when we first met him, so obviously in 2007 he's 60. And when I learned that in the police in Scotland, 60 is the retirement age, I thought, well, he's got to go. So, I mean, those two things came together without us really thinking about it um, too much. Um, she was spotted scribbling away in a cafe recently, actually. Oh, is she? <laughs> My wife spotted her. Uh, Rebus is Writing retired. a Edinburgh criminal detective novel. <laughs> <laughs> Just as I get around to writing my magical young magician book. <laughs> Wouldn't Harry Potter make a great detective? <laughs> it started here. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rebus has retired. Ha has he changed since 20 years? How has he changed in, in the last 20 years? Has he got more, uh, more of a sort of miserable old lonely bugger, or is he, is he, is he kind of opened up he's, more? I mean, he's, he's changed in various ways. I mean, he's, he's got older, so he's got a little bit fat and a little bit slower. Um, he, but then also, I mean, in the very early books, he listens to jazz music, which I didn't know much about, but I thought that cops like him would listen to. Then I stopped doing that because another crime writer came along who also had a jazz-loving hero, so I got Rebus into rock music. So there's suddenly a big shift in his character there. Um, he's, you know, relationships have come and gone. He carries with him the, the ghosts of every case, so there's an awful lot in his head that wasn't there in book one. 
And, I mean, book one was written with the expectation that it would be the only book to feature this character. So there's a lot of stuff in that that I then had to carry forward to the, to the series when I realized that it was a series. He's, I mean, he's got a very deep bond with Siobhan that I would say is avuncular, if not fatherly. I mean, he just, he, 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 they connect in a, a terrific way. And that wasn't there in the early books. I mean, he was, I think he was much more of a loner in the early books um, than he is now. Um, but he's, he's very driven. He's not as religious as he used to be. In the early books, again, he um, goes to a lot of churches. He's trying to find a church that he likes. He's trying to find answers to the big questions. And I think that mirrored a process I was going through myself and when I'd gone through that process I didn't feel the need to do it with him anymore. He has been my punch bag and my psychiatrist for, for 20 years. Mm. Um, and so without him, who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll go postal, uh, the shorthand term for someone who goes crazy in public and starts shooting the place up. <laughs> um, without that channeling that stuff onto the page, it might, I mean, maybe I need him. Maybe I need him more than I think I do. Do you share his musical taste? Some. Uh, he's, but he's old, you know, he's 60, I'm 47, so he's, he goes back a bit further than me. So he's listening to stuff from the early 60s that I wouldn't have been aware of. Um, I, I mean, I like a lot of the stuff he likes, but in fact, the, the book is named after an album, but the album is not an album he would ever listen to. It's much mm. newer than that. Mm. Every... Go on, uh, ask me again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just going to rather hopelessly tr ask you about the title, but uh, are you going to tell me? I, well, I'll give it a few minutes. <laughs> I've got it, I had to write it down because I forgot it myself. Every, uh, almost every... Don't want to get it wrong, do I? No, you must get it right. Uh, almost every Reba's book is set, not just in Edinburgh, not just in Scotland, but in contemporary Scotland. And, mm. and, and the last one uh, set around the G8 summit mm. and uh, very heavily into the political scene. Is that too important to you in, as you develop both Rebus's character and indeed your own writing, that you stay in touch with what's happening in your country now? Well, I mean, the books were written originally for me to make sense of Edinburgh and then to try and explain Edinburgh to the wider world. And then, as I got more confident, maybe to think about modern Scotland and to try and put together a patchwork quilt of modern Scotland and where it's going. And the new book, um, uh, interestingly to me, was originally going to be set in November 2007, but I was writing it towards the end of 2006, and I didn't know what the political situation was going to be. I, the Scottish elections were still ahead, and it's quite a political book again. And so I decided that I would set it in November 2006, um, in the lead up to the elections, when people are talking about what would happen if the SNP got in. C can we imagine the breakup of Britain? And this stuff, what is the future of Scotland? And that stuff is all there as a, as a point for debate within the book, and it's, it is actually part of the theme of the book, um, which, again, when I tell you the title of the book, will hopefully resonate a little bit. Um, but the, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the books have become much more politicised as I have grown more politicised. When I was a student, I had no interest in politics whatsoever mm. um, when I wrote the first Rebus book. And then probably, and then when I started to be, you know, a, a father of children and wondered what, what's this country going to be like for my kids when I'm not here, then I got much more interested in what um, a future Scotland might be like. And you, of course, were gracious enough to offer me the chance to interview various political leaders in the run-up to the Scottish That's elections, right. which allowed me free reign to people like Alex Salmond and uh, Tony Blair, and, and, indeed, and, and the leaders of some of the smaller parties. And that was, you know, a fascinating, I mean, I'm not a political correspondent, so I mean, it was done in a little slightly cat-handed amateur fashion, but it nonetheless fascinating. Uh, and fascinating to actually get to ask the questions, where do you think Scotland is going? And do you think the political climate of a country is actually important uh, in terms of either inspiring or influencing writers in general C culture. and you in particular? I mean, culture in general. I mean, there's no doubt about it that, I mean, ever, really ever since devolution became an issue in the late 70s and we had the first devolution um, vote in 79, that was around about the time that, you know, Kelman and Alistair Gray and, and you know, 784 was happening and, there was a lot of there was a lot of you know energy and a lot of um, zap and and when we finally got the parliament you know lots of young writers lots of musicians lots of playwrights lots of artists there was a buzz mm. uh, and I sense it now with the SNP um, in power and in inverted commas that again there's a kind of chart you know so many histories of Scotland being written and so many revisions going on and and people saying where do we come from and what does it mean to be Scots and 
Can we imagine not being part of the United Kingdom? What makes us different from England? I mean, all these big questions. What makes us different from England? Do we need a separate parliament? Are we a different culture? Why are we different? How are we different? Mm. Um, are questions that artists, I mean, everybody's asking them, but artists channel it into their work. So, so that's, the, that's interesting It's the me. logical extension of that, that if we actually get independence, literature in Scotland will enjoy a sort of tremendous <laughs> boom. Well, um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I think, they w well, it would enjoy a tremendous boom because the SNP would um, bring in tax breaks for culture. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you wish. On, well, no, on, on the, I've asked about that, on the Irish model where, um, you know, we would no longer lose our great um, artistic people to Ireland where they pay no tax. Um, no, I don't know what would happen. I really don't. I mean, I, I, I do think there is an energy around it. Although I was, I was talking about this with a literary editor this morning in a cafe and he said, he said, I don't see it. He said, he said, I'm looking for great new poets and I'm not seeing them. And, and which made me a wee bit disappointed because I had this image in my head that, you know, I mean, something like the National Theatre of Scotland. Mm. Boom. You know, suddenly Black Watch and everything else they've done has all been phenomenal. I mean, the back eye at the festival just now, bringing Alan Cumming back to Edinburgh, bang. You know, there's a, I mean, there's a sense that the hair rises in Hallam Foe, premiering at the, um, at the film festival last night. Um, and then I thought, yeah, young poets, ooh. But then I don't know much about poetry and I'm sure people are going to shout names out at the end and tell us who these great young poets are. There's a great school of young poets based mainly around St Andrews. So yeah, well I mean in St Andrews, which was a moribund, <laughs> moribund English department when I applied to go there. Uh, I went there when I was in my final year at, at, at Beath High School in Cowden Beath. We got to go, you know, we got to go and visit some of the unis. And this guy from the English department with a huge bushy beard and a cloak, I'd never seen anybody wear a cloak before. Uh, <laughs> stood there and I said, what modern literature, literature can I hope to study at St Andrews? And straight-faced he went, Milton. <laughs> that was in 1977. Um, fast forward to now and you've got an English department staffed almost entirely by creative writers mm. and, and a fantastic energy about the place. Uh, and people specialising in, I mean, Jill Plain, who's written a book about my detective novels, is, is a professor, a lecturer there. Mm. You know, it's a real buzz about the place. Yeah, it's great. I just want to haul you back to crime and to Rebus. And uh, I suppose, forlornly, I might ask you what the title is of the new <laughs> Rebus book. But uh, if you're not prepared to tell me yet, I just wanted to ask you about, we've had, um, just the other week, the burial of a famous Glasgow mm -hmm. gangster, the licensee. in, in uh, yeah. the licensee. Yeah. Now, in, in some ways, he might have been a character straight out of Rebus, except yeah. that Glasgow crime is different from Edinburgh crime, isn't it? Well, I mean, as we all know, there is no crime in Edinburgh, per se. Um, <laughs> I mean, to the extent that there are, there are no Mr. Biggs. Mm. Edinburgh is just not as big a city, and it doesn't have this entrenched... Uh, gang culture that, that Glasgow has and so Edinburgh's never, I mean gangs have attempted, I mean a few years ago the, the, the UVF um, over in Belfast attempted to set up drug gangs in uh, Wester Hills or Sight Hill but the police were so quick to crack down on them and to break it up and put the guys in jail that it didn't quite happen. So there's always the potential in Edinburgh for gangsterism but it hasn't quite happened yet and if Cafferty, my Rebus's nemesis, the gangster who runs Edinburgh in my books, if he represents anything, he is an amalgam of people like the licensee. Mm. Um, because there, and, and, and other criminals from Glasgow who've, who've gone or who've died, um, most of them surprisingly peacefully in their sleep. Um, so he's an amalgam of those kinds of characteristics and possibilities. What I write about in the books are the possibilities that these things could happen in Edinburgh. I'm not saying they do, but they could, mm. given the right series of circumstances. So there is no Cafferty, um, per se, as far as I know. But if there was, he'd be so good, he'd be, he'd be invisible, mm. you know. But is there something about the climate? Could, could you have, uh, if you've been starting again, <clears throat> I mean, because there is simply more active and ostentatious crime in Glasgow, could you have set Rebus in Glasgow, or would you just not have had that I, I don't. I, I wouldn't have done it because I didn't and don't know Glasgow yeah. well enough. And, and the reason to write about Edinburgh was to try and make sense of Edinburgh, and that's an ongoing process, uh, to try and definitively, I mean, how can you? But I'm trying definitively to get to know this city, which I do through writing about it. Um, but every, every time I think I've pinned it down, there's a new thing, something pops up. You know, someone tells me about a hidden street or something that happened in history or... Uh, 
I was, recently I did a, a documentary on um, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, and some of the stuff you know, that was new to me was fascinating. I did a documentary about the writing of the Rebus novels, and um, I didn't know that if you go to the back of St. Giles Cathedral to the parking lot for the courts, there's a little brown square on the, on the, on, on a parking zone that is actually the, the burial place of John Knox. That's all there is. It's a little brown square. And it's always got a transit van parked on top of it, which um, <laughs> I'm sure he'd be thrilled by. So, I mean, it's always these little quirky things about Edinburgh, things that, yeah. I mean, thankfully people tell me about them, and then I think I'm going to introduce a, a new readership, a new audience to them by putting them in the books. And nothing thrilled me as much as when I wrote about the little dolls and coffins that were in the falls, which are in the museum on Chamber Street, and, and the museum said to me, we've had so many people come now to look at them, and before we never got any visitors to the dolls, because no one knew about them. And now people are coming into the museum and actually going up to the fourth floor and looking for and looking at the dolls and, of course, all the other exhibits around them. So have you now come to terms? Do you understand Edinburgh? You've come to terms? You've written enough about it no. to really feel you understand No, I mean, it? I think, you know, partly because I'm an outsider, because um, I wasn't born here, I didn't move here until I was 18, and even then spent 10 years in later life away from the city. I still don't know it. And Edinburgh contains multitudes. There is room in Edinburgh for Alexander McCall Smith's Edinburgh, Irvin Welsh's Edinburgh, J.K. Rowling's Edinburgh, if she ever wants to write about it, Kate Atkinson's Edinburgh, you know, various poets and playwrights and my Edinburgh and Quentin Jordan's Edinburgh. You know, these are all the city. Just, you know, it's just a, a, a stories. I think stories are, 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 are in the stones. Mm. You know, you, you're walking, every time you walk down a street in Edinburgh, you're walking through a series of stories uh, and characters. Mm. So I think it's endless. It's an endless uh, um, endlessly fascinating and an endless source of material. Yeah. Well, talking about um, sources of material and fascination, I think we ought to talk briefly about lesbian lesbianism, don't uh -huh. you think? I can't even <laughs> um, Because um, it has been a, a bit of a stooshy this week uh, in which... It's August. It's a quiet news month. Oh, I see. Uh, but what is it that you've got about women writers and violence? <laughs> Um, well, actually, I mean, the Times today, not to puff your trumpet too much, but the Times was actually quite fair about it, despite the lurid headline. I mean, the point I was trying to make, which was mangled up partly in the telling and partly in the finessing of the way it was written up originally, which was months and months and months ago in a, an interview I did, um, was that I'd been looking at the top ten bestseller lists, specifically the top ten bestseller list in the UK, and specifically the, can he, um, the writers who came after P.D. James and Ruth Rendell, the slightly younger writers, and it seemed to me just, it's a generalization, but if you wanted to get into the top 10 as a crime writer, if you were a woman, it helped to write books that included graphic scenes of violence. And if you were a man, it helped if you didn't. So you had people like um, Andrew Taylor was in the top 10 at that time, and Robert Goddard, and me, and Peter Robinson. And none of our books were exactly sensational um, and, and didn't have this um, graphic description. Um, whereas you had people, um, you, you know, there were Tess Gerritsen was in, I think, and, and Karen Slaughter, and maybe Val had a book, and I forget. And it was just a kind of, you know, a comment that, that it seemed to help if you were a man not to mm. be writing. I mean, there are plenty of male writers out there who write violent crime novels, mm. but they, so far they don't tend to get into the top ten. Um, and there are lots and lots of very good women crime writers who don't have graphic descriptions of violence in their books um, who are not making it into the top ten. I mean, that could all change. So it was just a sort of moment's observation, um, which got, hey, blown up. Well, but um, I can live with it. <laughs> but but were, you making, were you making just an observation, or do you, would you like to push it a little further and, and ask if there was a sort of psychological element about it? Well, as I well? don't know. I mean, there are, I, I think there are theories out there about you know, women reclaiming violence that may, male crime writers, if you think of the hard-boiled, the American crime novel, male writers used to think nothing, I mean, it's sort of, you know, the, the pulp novels of the 50s, Mickey Spillane type novels, of, of just having people slapping women and stuff. And I think male writers these days think really hard before they have violence in their, or, you know, before they, they, they put violent scenes in their books. You think, is, is, is there a reason for it? Um, so you can talk about reclaiming violence, or you, it's all kinds so of theories. Women are a bit more slapdash about it. No, 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 I don't think so. I think, I think what they're saying is we can do it. We're allowed yeah. to do it. Right. In the past we weren't. It wasn't seemly, somehow. <laughs> You know, you didn't go to Agatha Christie for the, for the brutal crucifixion scenes. <laughs> and, and maybe Agatha dreamed them up all the time. She just didn't write them because her audience would have gone, no, 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 no. So have um, you made your piece with Val McDermott? Yeah, well, I mean, back months ago, we made our piece. We sort of went to a Wraith Rovers match afterwards and sat together oh, and oh, ate pies. Um, 
And I mean, last night Val was on the internet to me, and we had a discussion on the internet. And yeah, I mean, we're not falling out. The media makes it makes us want, you know, they want us to have fallen out because it's just, it'll keep the story going for It's another bit of newsprint in a quiet month, Magnus. <laughs> You'll know about this. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's about time that we uh, asked you again about the. Uh, <laughs> The title of this book, um, and uh, you know, after all, that's what everybody's eagerly yeah. awaiting. Could you like to tell us what it is now? I am going to tell you what it is. Great. <laughs> I am. I mean, before we throw it open to questions, because I want to explain why I came up with it. Um, I mean, after much hooing and hawing, uh, I decided it's going to be called Exit Music. Exit Music. I mean, partly because Rebus is making his exit. Um, partly because there is an exit as in a murder in the book. Um, partly because there's a kind of echoes of what might happen with, a, with potential independence, which would be the exit of Scotland from the United Kingdom. Um, and also it's the title of a, a, an album by a guy called Stephen Lindsay, who's a Scottish singer-songwriter, pianist, fantastic, great late-night music. Um, and I, I bought his album, to, his, his first album was called Exit Music, and I bought it a couple of years ago, and as soon as I saw it, I thought, book. And I kept it because it seemed to me like a last book. Exit music feels to me like a last book. So I had it in the, in the, in the kind of stored away in the ideas file. And um, I think it works. It's also then, later on I realised, it's also a track by uh, Radiohead, who you won't have heard of, Magnus, I but they're, a, I have. My they're a fairly listening. successful young band of musicians. Um, so it's a track by them. And of course, I've got their albums, but I hadn't realised that because I never look at track listings. Um, so I asked Stephen Lindsay for his, was he okay? although there is no copyright on titles, I said, look, would you be okay with me stealing your title for, um, for my book? Uh, and he said, yeah, that's fine. And um, so that's what it's going to be called, Exit Music. But if I hadn't been called Exit Music, it, I was going to call it um, Inspector John Rebus and the Deathly Hallows. <laughs> was my, um, but so, somebody got there first. I think the my... I think there might, have been, there might have been a bit of trouble about, about that. No copyright on titles, young man. <laughs> just before we do throw the uh, questioning open, uh, just the TV adaptations, two adaptations of, mm. of Rebus, the two different actors. Mm. Uh, what do you feel about Ken Stock and the way he, he does it? Uh, well, I mean, you know, from what I, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I don't really watch it, but from what fans tell me, they much prefer him as an actor playing Rebus, but they're still not sure that the dramatizations are actually, well, they're not true to the books. An awful lot gets cut out. They take the basic premise of the book and then they shape it into a TV drama that will take no longer than 75 minutes, because yeah. that's what it is. 15 minutes of ads make it up to 90 minutes. So it's a 75-page script, and so they really just take the basic nugget of the theme of the book and then they play around with it. And each writer has a different approach to it. And I never look at the scripts, so I have no idea what's going on. But it has sold into 70 odd um, territories and been very successful. And people like Ken Stott, he likes doing it. He's just finished filming. People who live in Edinburgh will know this. He's finished filming four more. So if you've had film crews outside your door or at your place of work, that's what's going on. Um, and they'll be shown, I would guess, before Christmas. I mean, maybe October or November. Um, and he seems happy to keep doing them. ITV, Scottish television. Of course, you know, with, with the, the great new dawn of, of, of Scottish broadcasting, as announced by Alex Salmond, great leader. there will be more drama being, being put out, uh, more Scottish drama will be put out, so we'll have Rebus every week, every week, uh, <laughs> another Rebus, uh, and more Taggart, and, uh, and more River City, of course. Which is, uh, yes. Could we have more River City? I don't know, how often is it on? Um, yeah, now I'll tell you what I really liked recently, and I did watch it, was a thing called Reichenbach Falls which was very, very, very loosely based on a short story of mine. But a, a friend of mine who's a scriptwriter and was at university with me, a guy called James Maver, um, had an idea that he could use that as the, as the, the, the beginning of a, a story about a detective in Edinburgh who realises that he's actually a character in a book in a long-running detective series and that the author is trying to bump him off. <laughs> uh, and it, it was, I mean, I watched it and it was so much fun, partly because it was shot entirely in Edinburgh. It had a great cast, it had lots of big ideas. Conan Doyle comes back and starts to give intimations to the detective that he is actually a character. And so there's all kinds of, you know, and the tunnels in Edinburgh are here and, and Conan Doyle is part of the, is one, is one of the clues to the solving of the crime. It was a lot of fun. And it was very, I mean, as a postmodernist piece of television, it was hell of a good fun. Um, 
and the de detective's name was Buckin. <laughs> where, you know, uh, I, I remember, can that take me right back? Because I remember when I, this, when I found out to my horror that I had become a crime writer, um, I was still a student and I went to the writer-in-residence at Edinburgh University, um, who at that time was Alan Massey. And I said, oh, um, Alan, I've become a crime writer by accident. I've written a crime novel without meaning to do it. And he said, well, you know, but that, that you're then one of the, you know, you're one of the, um, the, the, the children of, of, of John Buchan. And isn't that a wonderful thing? And it was a wonderful thing. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and Buchan's novels uh, are, are terrific. So it was that kind of little thing, that little, lots of little in, fun in jokes in it. Yeah. When I was in it, I had a little cameo role where I, I weirdly had to ask the author if he would sign my book. Um, the, the author's name was Jack Harvey, and, and, and sadly played by an actor much, much better looking than me. Um, well, now is your chance. I'm sure you all have questions you'd like to, to ask Ian, so if you would uh, uh, put your hands up. and uh, Roving mics. There are roving mics, which perhaps you'd wait until the mic gets to you, uh, and uh, there's one question here to stick, kick, us, kick off. Um, this is a music question, Ooh. not a book question. Were you at either of the Skids reunion gigs in Dunfermline last month? And if so, what did you think of them? I was at the first of the Skids reunion gigs. I think it was the first, it might be the second. Uh, I was at the Skids 30th anniversary reunion gig. Uh, at, at, at the place in Dunfermline where I last saw them, uh, I think, uh, back in 1978 or 9. Um, and it was the weird, I mean, it was fantastic. They were so pumped up and the tunes were so great, but it was so weird to be surrounded by fat, bald men uh, <laughs> trying to pogo uh, and lasting about three minutes. I was at the very back with my fingers in my ears going, oh, it's awfully loud, isn't it? <laughs> and, and these fat fans would suddenly appear from this huge throng in front of me, sweat lashing off them, T-shirts off. Uh, I mean, it was, it was an intimation of mortality. <laughs> But the skids themselves were absolutely superb. Um, and I wish I'd been, I didn't even see them on TV when they played Tea in the Park. I know it was a warm-up gig for Tea in the Park. I mean, the music thing is great. I've, I've just, I just got sent, yesterday I got a CD from a young Edinburgh band called St. Jude's Infirmary. They're Edinburgh slash Kirkcaldy band. Um, they grew up in Kirkcaldy, but they live here now. And their second album is gonna be a themed album about Edinburgh. And they asked me if I would write the lyrics for the final track, which is called uh, The Foot of the Walk. So, and they've sent me a kind of rough cut of the final track using my lyrics, and it's terrific. And the album's artwork is going to be done by Jack Vetriano. So, I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, thing, and they're a great band, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. They want me in the studio to try and do some mumbling over the top of it, or beneath <laughs> the surface. I'm not sure about that, but yes, I was at this <laughs> If anybody's got bootlegs of it, I'd love to get a bootleg of it. It's on YouTube. On YouTube? Ah, you see. <laughs> is that on that funny internet-y thing that I never <laughs> use? Uh, can't do the internet. <laughs> I'm like Rebus. Okay. Um, yep. Crime fiction has recently been a subject of literary analysis at the English department in Heidelberg and uh, also at St. Andrews, obviously. So, um, in your opinion, which characteristics of the genre in general and of your Rebus novels in particular? Um, justify an ac academic approach to crime fiction and which are the most interesting <laughs> <laughs> that's the last yeah. bit and which are the most interesting features to analyze could you answer on one side of the sheet of paper only? <laughs> I was say, if, if I answer that at enough length your dissertation is done <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, as someone who, who you know, at university I studied American literature, I studied um, English literature, I did my PhD on Muriel Spark and the Edinburgh novel, the Scottish novel. I, I wasn't a, a fan of crime fiction at that time, and so I came to crime fiction as a, uh, from a literary perspective, really, from thinking of it as, a, as a, an extension of um, the, the themes of Jekyll and Hyde and Justified Sinner and a lot of these um, early and great Scottish novels. And that was the way I looked at it, was just that I was writing about contemporary Edinburgh in a kind of gothic manner with a detective as my guide. Um, and a few of the books, you know, really do quite closely mimic things like, I mean, the first one does mimic Jekyll and Hyde. Hyde and Seek actually puns on, on the word Hyde. Um, uh, um, I'm going to forget the title of it now. The Black Book is a homage to Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Um, 
you know, I mean, the, the crime novel at its best should do many things. I mean, it should talk to us about, about our own moral fiber. What would we do in a situation? Um, what would make us do bad things? What is it that, that makes society, which could be this fantastic ideal, uh, go rotten at the edges and sometimes at the center? Um, and, and also, I think at its best, the crime novel is it's a political form. I think there's a lot of politics. Whether you're talking about George Pelicanos um, or whether you're talking about all of the Scandinavian crime writers or Japanese crime writers, French crime writers, um, a lot of them tend to be left-wing um, and they use the crime novel as a kind of polemic. Um, so, I mean, there are many, many, many things that make it worth analysing. Um, I mean, not all crime novels are great crime novels, but then not all literary novels are great novels. Um, but I think there's enough there that makes it good. Another thing I would say is that I think the English crime novel, the, the, the Agatha Christie school, really comes from the pastoral. It comes from this idea of an idealised England where everything is shaken up, but then things like a Shakespearean comedy, at the end everything is resolved. And at the same time, the American hardball tradition, Chandler, uh, Raymond Chandler was very, very aware of the grail myth. And if you read the first few and the first last pages of The Big Sleep, um, you will see the grail myth poking, you know, peering out at you. Um, he named Marlowe, his central character, originally named him Mallory, um, the author of Mort d'Arthur. Um, and he was schooled in England in a public school and he knew the classics. So, I mean, there are literary antecedents for these uh, genres. And have you finished? Are you getting that? <laughs> yep. Good. I think you've helped her out a lot there. You see, I, I, that, that could have been my PhD. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> Good. She got that. She did. Um, My God. <laughs> I don't think I was going to have to work. There's a lady down the front. Is that a really tough one? <laughs> Good. I was just wondering how closely have you worked with the police when you've been working on your novels? Um, I, I, I try not to go near the police unless I need a specific piece of information because I don't want the books to become public relations exercises for good cops and the only cops you tend to meet are the good cops. I want to still be able to write about cops on the edge or cops who've crossed the line. Um, but, I mean, there are um, detectives who've been with me pretty much from the beginning as, as, as sources of information, but sadly they've, they've all retired now. Um, they have they've literally done their 30 years, maximum pension. I mean, these are guys who joined the police at 17 and 18, so they're now in their late 40s and they are retiring. Um, and so I am losing my, uh, I would have to start again, I think, with, with contacts in the police. Um, I mean, weirdly, I mean, this, is, this isn't quite on the subject, but I do get asked to go and cover trials and things by newspapers. So, for example, recently there was a guy in, I think, I was it Poland, who, a crime writer who killed his wife. Um, and then wrote about it in one of his, well, did he kill his wife, we're not sure, but he wrote about the crime in one of his books and um, he's now been charged with, with her murder um, because the book was so close, used information that the police think could only have been known. Was it his wife? Maybe it wasn't his wife. See, I could be getting confused because there was a case a few years ago where a Dutch crime writer did kill his wife in exactly the same method he'd used in a previous book. And his defence, this is brilliant, his defence was, would I have done that? And came the prosecution answer, yes. <laughs> and he went to jail for a very long time. Um, but if it's Austria, maybe this thing's taking place just now. And this guy killed somebody and then wrote about it in a book. Yes. So they think. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was also asked to write about a licensee, but I didn't. I, I was too busy. Yes, but I asked you to write I know you asked me to write about a licensee. <laughs> um, I never question, knew the guy. Question at the back there. Yeah, keep them fit. Get them running. John Rebus and the Deathly Hallows, it would have worked. <laughs> it would have been. Good. It would have worked. Yeah. You'd have been sued. Then. Do you think there's a Fife novel in you? Uh, th there is indeed a Fife novel in me. It's called The Flood, and it was published in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, okay, a new Fife novel. A new Fife novel. Mm. Well, oh dear. I mean, Fife's got everything, as we all know. I mean, who, kn who knows in the future? Maybe, maybe. I went back to Carden Den for the making of that TV show about... Uh, Rebus' Scotland and, and, and where I got the ideas from and I went back to my hometown and it was just the most heartwarming, hilarious, fantastic trip back because everybody, as soon as they saw the TV cameras, everybody was out the houses, on the doorsteps. What are you doing? <laughs> Mayor, making a film. Are you that guy that writes the stories? Yep. Uh, uh, my dad knew your dad. You went to school with my son. Bing, 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 bing. That's your cousin John over there. <laughs> 
It was exactly all the good things I remember about Carden Den, which is that it's a tribe. <laughs> it's, it's a tribe. Um, everybody knows everybody else, and it was fantastic that a community like that has kept on going through, through thick and thin, through um, economic good times and, and long periods of economic decline. Um, so maybe there is a Fife novel. Um, who knows? Who knows? I mean, I see that Irvin Welsh has just written a novella set in Cowdenbeath um, in his latest book of short stories. Uh, well, if he can do it, surely I can have a go. Uh, I did, I mean, recently, I mean, amongst the many, many different things I've done, I did write a novella for the New York Times, um, a serial which they put in their Sunday magazine for 15 weeks. It just finished last week, which was my Edinburgh heist novel. And it was basically Ocean's Eleven in Edinburgh. And um, I wanted to call it Ocean's Terminal 11. <laughs> but um, but the, the editor of the New York Times said, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and I realised that a New York audience probably wouldn't realise. And that was, that was fun. That was really hard, though, because they kept coming back at me and saying, you can't use that. An American audience won't understand that. Can we change this to that? And... Uh, it was about paintings, a heist of, of various paintings, and uh, they're saying, are these real artists? Because if they're real artists, we have to, our lawyers have to check, they're okay with it, and uh, bing, 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 bing. And uh, it was, I mean, every week they were, oh, what is this thing? What, does Princess Street really exist? <laughs> is there a national gallery? And, uh, oh, do you all wear kilts? <laughs> It was hard work. Anyway, that's coming out next year in the UK. I'm going to beef it up. It's only 120 pages, but I'm going to beef it up, put in a lot of stuff that I had to leave out because it was only 3,000, 2,500 words a week. Yeah. So a lot of stuff I had to leave out is going back in, and we'll publish it in the UK next year. It's called Doors Open, and it takes place on Doors Open Day in Edinburgh when you open up the doors of all our fantastic buildings and allow burglars in. <laughs> <laughs> I know we don't have burglars in Scotland. There is no crime of burglary. I got picked up on that early on. There is no burglary in Scotland. We call it housebreaking. <laughs> or the entering of lockfast premises. <laughs> and if it's burglary, if it's aggravated burglary in Scotland, it's called hame-sucking. Mm. Have you come across that? I have, yeah. Hame-sucking. I love hame-sucking. Yeah. I've never managed to use it in a book yet. <laughs> Can you imagine the fun of explaining that to an American <laughs> <laughs> But it sounds as if you're actually exploring quite a lot of you, you. You mentioned you're writing a libretto for an opera. A 15-minute libretto, yep. Short stories. Yep. What, what else? What other things are you doing? Sort of. Um, I'm doing a comic book, uh, a standalone graphic novel, comic book. Um, I've uh, I, I, after I've got to write two more novels. I, I've, I'm signed up with my publisher to write two more books that are not necessarily Rebus. Um, I've not even started to think about what they might be about. Can you break out of the crime novel mode? I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, maybe that's, that's critics. I mean, that's down to the critics and the reviewers to say, uh, you know, I mean, the Naming of the Dead, one reviewer said, almost transcends the genre. I mean, what happens when you transcend the genre? Is it no longer a crime novel? Mm. If that novel involved a guy doing what Rebus does, but he wasn't a cop, mm. would that then not be a crime novel? Um, you know, M M Gerald Kaufman said about Ruth Rendell that if she, if, she didn't, if she wasn't under this umbrella term of crime writer, she would have won the Booker Prize years yeah. ago with one of her Barbara Vine books. And is that important? Would that be important to I you? Know, I mean, I'd, I'd, only to the extent that, that you, know, I think, uh, you know, I think crime fiction should be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's any longer about a little puzzle that you read on a train on the way to somewhere and you just, when you're finished, it's done and it's, you've not gleaned anything except you've had a nice time solving a puzzle. Yeah. I think crime fiction has got, I mean, people like Denise, uh, uh, Denise Mina uh, in Scotland and David Peace in, in England have gone way beyond that and plenty of other young writers with them. So I think, it, and, and David Peace's latest book, which is actually about the, the failed tenure of Brian Clough at Leeds United, um, is written like a hardball crime novel, but isn't and hasn't been reviewed as such. So he is actually managing to break these barriers down. Uh, but it doesn't sort of gnaw away at you. I'm, I wish they would stop reviewing me as a crime writer and review me as a, as a writer. Does oh, no, I think, I think that's happened to a large extent. I mean, I get this, what's called a standalone review now. It's not the kind of roundup of crime yeah. novels. I do get a sort of decent chunk of, of review space um, in, 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 the, in the big newspapers. So, I mean, to that extent, I think, and, and so do a lot of other crime writers. So, I mean, I think that is... I mean, it's crumbling because... Uh, partly because crime writers are writing better and better books that are continuously relevant to the modern age, taking on big themes and big ideas. Partly because schools and universities have started teaching crime fiction, uh, and you can study crime novels in the curriculum now. Yeah. 
Um, you, you, in, in high school in Scotland, you can study crime fiction at university or you'll come across a component of it. Or if you're studying Scottish literature at university, you might come across a crime novel in there. Um, so the barriers are, yeah, they're, they're, you know, yeah, it's all good. Mm. Cheerio. <laughs> First in the queue for the sign book. Sorry, I've ignored the audience. There's, there's a, a question here, halfway up, and one at the front. And then we're done, right? Not yet. You mean you want the real title of the book? <laughs> Are you writing any more as Jack Harvey, or is that out your system? I, I, I don't think... I mean, these two books that I, I'm signed up to do, if they ain't rebus novels, um, would be the equivalent of Jack Harvey novels. But I don't think... And the reason that I invented Jack Harvey was that I didn't want people to buy them thinking they were getting a rebus. But now I, I sense that an audience is savvy enough. People who go to bookshops are pretty savvy. They're going to maybe look at the back, the flyleaf. They're going to know that you know, it's a rebus or it's not a rebus, and they'll decide for themselves. So I think I could write non-rebus books under the name Ian Rankin, and wouldn't feel the need to re-resurrect Jack Harvey. So it's Exit Jack Harvey as well. Uh, exit Jack, I guess it is. Oh, well, who knows? My Can son's he... called Jack Harvey Rankin, so maybe he'll start writing books. <laughs> and and, and two-thirds of Jack Harvey will come back. <coughs> Actually, I don't think he will ever write books. <coughs> no. Have you ever suffered writer's block? And how would you get over that? <laughs> do I ever suffer writer's block? Uh, no, but what I, I mean, what I tend to do is I write through it. I write through it. So if I'm writing a novel and I get to a bit and I'm not sure what's going to happen in that scene, I just jump, put a big block, block capital saying, come back and fill in a bit about so-and-so doing something. Go to the next scene. Um, and that way you keep the flow going and, and eventually you might get the idea you're looking for that's going to... Something will happen later in the book that is perfect to go back in that bit that you've skipped. Um, every writer's different, of course. Every writer's got different ways of dealing with it. Um, no, writers... No. I mean, what I tend to do is just write rubbish and then eventually write again and, and get it right the next time. I mean, my first libretto for this Scottish opera thing, um, it was a 15-minute opera set in a police interview room <laughs> in Edinburgh. And it was a detective and a suspect. There were video screens. There was tape-recorded evidence. There was this and that. And Scottish opera went, well, yeah. Uh, could you make it more like an opera? <laughs> and... Um, so the second one is set in 16th century Italy, and everybody's going, no, 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 and this huge bloodletting at the end, and, oh, I'm dead, no, I'm not, yes, I am, no, I'm not, and uh, they were much, much, much happier with that. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an opera of traditional build. <laughs> you, you talked about writer's block, and... Uh, just a couple of days ago, some of us, very privileged, had the uh, opportunity of drinking a 20-year-old Rebus whiskey. Mm. Uh, what about drink and writing? Is that, does drink help writing? No. I, in the early days, I tried that. You know, I mean, a lot of my heroes were alcoholics. Um, people like Chandler and, and, um, and Faulkner, William. I mean, you know, lots of them were heavy drinkers. And some of them had successfully written while drunk or while drunkards. So I tried it. I tried drinking and writing, and it was just rubbish. I mean, sometimes you thought it was terrific, but it never was. Uh, sometimes it may have been terrific, but you couldn't actually physically read it. Um, and sometimes it just was rubbish. So, I, I, you know, I've got to be... I mean, lots and lots of coffee, lots of soft drinks, lots of snacks and chocolate, um, but no booze while I'm writing and, and no drugs. Um, uh, no. Because I'm a non-smoker there, the only time I ever tried uh, cannabis. I mean, since, you know, all the Labour ministers have come out as cannabis smokers. Uh, even Alistair Darling, which uh, explains those nice bushy eyebrows. It, uh, uh, I, better, I better out myself. I did once try cannabis at university, but because, because I, I wasn't used to nicotine. The nicotine hit me before the, 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 the drugs, and I just, I just spewed, you know, I was cold sweats, tremors, because yeah. it's a poison, you know, nicotine's yeah. a poison, and, and I've, I've, I've tried smoking because I thought it was a cool thing to do as a teenager, but I, I just l didn't like the taste, didn't like the smell, uh, and then my mum up and died of lung cancer, which didn't help, mm. so that put me, no, no drugs, no cigarettes, and yet Rebus, I think, is a very successful smoker, and this new book is the first book in which he has had to deal with the smoking ban. Um, Naming of the Dead was before the smoking ban. Yes. Exit music is after the smoking ban. So there's that incredible tension within him where to smoke, he's got to leave his drink. Yeah. 
and to drink, he's got to leave his smoke. So there's this fantastic sort of in the doorway of the Oxford bar with a... <laughs> so he's actually getting exercise. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, one thing that uh, Ian doesn't suffer from is talker's block. And uh, we've all enjoyed the last hour enormously. We now know the title. It is Exit Music. Uh, and it will be available in another... Uh, first week of September, I think. First week of September. But meanwhile, you can, there are other uh, of Ian's books available, and he will be very happy to sign them. So would you all please join in thanking Ian Rankin. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks. That's great. Thank you.